0: Good morning again. My name's Nolan. I'm the youth pastor here if we haven't met. I'm covering the pulpit this morning while Pastor Jeff is in Rwanda meeting with some new missionary partners. Uh, so we're continuing this morning in the, our study of the book of Hebrews called Jesus is Better. And the author of Hebrews has been showing us how the law of Moses and the sacrificial system of the people of Israel finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ echoing and expanding on the very words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 17, when he said, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose, to fulfill them. So last week, Jeff got really ambitious and covered 40 verses in chapters 8 and 9. He graciously assigned me a shorter passage, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, And last week, Jeff used the term baby talk, to help us understand what God was doing through the law and the sacrificial system, what the author of Hebrews calls the Old Covenant. God was establishing laws and structures and physical spaces where his people could encounter his presence in ways that they could see and feel and understand. But just as baby talk is a precursor to the wide breadth of human language, the Old Covenant is a spiritual developmental precursor To the new covenant in Jesus, when the law is not some external thing that we try to follow, but it's put into our hearts and it's put into our minds because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So, the author of Hebrews is going to continue with a similar concept to Baby Talk in chapter 10, referring to the law of Moses as a shadow or a dim preview of the good things to come. And we'll learn that this shadow was never meant to take away sin but it served as a constant reminder of our sin and our shame. And ultimately, the shadow of this law is Jesus, who is the single sacrifice for all sins for all time. So there's a lot of exciting things to talk about in our passage today. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. And I'm going to have a few points for us this morning. We'll first explore this idea of the law's shadow, and we'll contrast that with the reality of Jesus' sacrifice, which is the only thing that can truly remove sin. And then we'll end by kind of reflecting on and talking about our own sin and our own shame. So the law shadow, Jesus' sacrifice and our shame. And a little disclaimer before we dive in here. It's really easy to get super academic with our theology in Hebrews. The author is explaining the law of Moses, and this is a sacrificial system that none of us have had any kind of firsthand experience in dealing with. So we're trying to understand laws and structures and systems and interpret them through the lens of Jesus. And the author loves to use logical arguments and references to the Old Testament and comparison and analogy. And it's super easy for some of us who are theologically inclined to just kind of nerd out. Uh, And it's also super easy for some of us who aren't so theologically inclined to check out. Uh, But my prayer is that we wouldn't just nerd out or check out, but that we'd recognize that all Scripture is just as relevant today as when it was written. So Hebrews is just as important to our faith now as it was for the first century Christians. And I think you'll see as we journey through this passage together that while we don't offer animal sacrifices to atone for our sin, we can still fall into repetitive patterns of sin followed by shame and then personal sacrifice to make up for it without recognizing that Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all time. So my hope is that our faith would be strengthened and that we'd have assurance of our freedom in Christ Jesus. So with all of that in mind... I'm going to read our passage for us, Hebrews chapter 10, 1 to 18. I'll read it through just so we can see kind of the full context and begin kind of processing and meditating on it. So Hebrews chapter 10, 1 to 18. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, But they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansings, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. First, Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I've come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand, and there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so, for he says, This is the new covenant I will make with the people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. So, my first point here is the law's shadow, the law's shadow. So, we're starting in the beginning of verse 1. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. So to be clear, when the author here is talking about the old system under the law of Moses, he's talking about the sacrificial system, animal and grain sacrifices that were established in the writings of Moses to deal with the sins of God's people. And that's what Hebrews is unpacking throughout the whole entire book in relation to the work of Jesus. And here the author says that the sacrificial system was only a shadow of the things to come. So I want to start unpacking this idea of shadow, and I think that's going to kind of carry us through the rest of this passage. I think for most of us, when we think of shadow, we think negatively. We think of something scary or something evil. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Winnie the Pooh with my two-year-old son, Silas, and it seems like in most Pooh Bear escapades, there's a scene where they find themselves in the 100-acre wood at night, and there's always a scene where the characters like see a shadow and imagine it to be some kind of scary monster. And like, Winnie the Pooh can get weirdly dark sometimes. I don't know if you guys have observed this. I'm still recovering from the heffalumps and woozles. It's a terrifying <laughs> sequence. And there are passages in the Bible that use shadow, shadow metaphors in a negative or scary way. So we could think of Psalm 23, a very, very famous Bible passage where it talks about the valley of the shadow of death. But even then, the shadow there is not necessarily the evil thing. Death is and the shadow is a sign that death is on the doorstep, that death is coming. A majority of shadow imagery in the Bible, instead of just being scary, refers to the precursor of what's to come. You see the shadow before you see the full reality, the true form of what's actually casting the shadow. And what is the shadow of here in Hebrews 10.1? It's a shadow of the good things to come. Speaking of Silas, he's a pretty good sleeper, but sometimes he'll wake up in the middle of the night, probably after having a bad dream, thinking about heffalumps and woozles. uh, And he'll call out for mommy or for daddy. And we actually just had one of those moments last night, so, you know, we're a little tired. Uh, But maybe you can remember back to your childhood, being in a similar situation. That may be easier for some of us who are younger to recall back then. But try your best. I think we've all been there Longing for the comfort of an adult or for the comfort of a parent. And so imagine you're there in your childhood bed, you're calling for your mom or dad after having a bad dream, and the hall light is on. So as they leave their room and approach your room, you see their shadow kind of falling through the doorway. And that shadow, it's not a scary thing, it's actually a sign that mom and dad or mom and dad are coming to soothe you. And in that situation, the shadow of your parent is comforting because you know that they heard you and that they're coming. The shadow appears because the good thing is near, it's close. The shadow is the promise that comfort, or maybe we could say salvation, is coming. And while shadow, it's an important aspect of anticipating your mother or father's presence, a shadow can only do so much. If I just like stood outside of Silas's doorway and let him see my shadow, That's probably not going to soothe him. He'll he'll still be somewhat distraught. He won't receive the full comfort until I finally step into the room, until he sees my face, until I hold him in my arms and tell him everything's okay and kind of rock him back to sleep. For Silas, I, Nolan, am better than my shadow. And I can do things for him that the shadow never could do on its own. How silly would it be to treat the shadow of someone as their full presence? The shadow is a dim preview of the things to come, not the good things or the true form itself. The Apostle Paul uses kind of similar shadow language to what we see here in Hebrews and Colossians chapter 2. He says, Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. There were some agreements among the early Christians about how to observe or how not to observe the law of Moses. For these rules are only shadows of the reality to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Jesus Christ is the true form whose shadow is cast in the law of Moses. So the law creates this anticipation for Jesus entering the room. And look at what's said in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus' birth is announced to Mary. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the son of God. In the annunciation of the birth of Jesus, he's so near at this point that the shadow overshadows her. It completely comes over her as he enters into the world. And we as humanity get to see God for who he is. We see his face and we begin to realize that everything that preceded him, his shadow, was leading us to him. The laws and regulations, the holy days, the festivals, the day of atonement, Passover, the Levitical priests, the slaughtering of animals to remove the guilt of sin, the burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, it all finds its fulfillment in Jesus on the cross. And in him, we experience the good things that God intended for us, like forgiveness and redemption and union with God himself. Jesus is better than a shadow. But often we mistake the shadow of Jesus for Jesus himself. And that's what Jesus really dealt with when he was interacting with the religious system and religious leaders of his day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, they were so used to the shadow of the law that when Jesus came, they didn't even recognize him as the origin of the shadow. The outline of the shadow was always the form of Jesus, but they couldn't comprehend the passing nature of a shadow The shadow is temporary until the reality of the true form arrives. And they couldn't accept that reality. Maybe sometimes we settle for the shadow of Jesus without recognizing that Jesus is so much more than his shadow. Maybe Jesus needs to step into our doorway and maybe change some ways we've misinterpreted his shadow. Not that God changes, he never changes, but maybe our awareness and our capacity to understand him needs to change. So that's why we as a church, we strive to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to live like Jesus. Continuing in verse 1, we'll go through verse 7 here. The sacrifices under that system, the law of Moses, they were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once and for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead... Those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you've given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. So, the shadow of the law was repeated again and again, And it could never fully deal with our sin. Uh, Jeff talked last week about the Day of Atonement. It occurred once a year, and it's when the high priest and only the high priest could enter the innermost part of the tabernacle or the temple to offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of God's people. So when we read here that the sacrifices were repeated again and again year after year, The author of Hebrews is specifically referencing the Day of Atonement, the annual removal of sins through animal sacrifices of the high priest. And the argument being made here is that the repetitive nature of these sacrifices actually shows their temporary nature. If the sins of the people were fully removed, there would be no need to annually, continually perform these sacrifices. So the author of Hebrews is using kind of a logical argument here, and he's using his vast knowledge of Scripture to slowly shift our understanding of the sacrificial system. Because for the Israelites, the law became this way. They cleansed themselves from their sin before God. That's what it became. But here in in verse 4, it says, it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's just not possible. It just can't do it. In fact it was never meant to do it. So to prove the point the author is going to go on to quote Jesus who quoted Psalm 40. It's kind of a quote within a quote, quoteception. I don't know if the kids are saying that these days. I should know as a youth pastor. But if the author was doing Bible trivia he'd get like double points with two quote within a quote here. So Jesus praying to God the Father uses Psalm 40 and says You do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you've given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. So if animal sacrifices were not needed to take away sins, and God certainly did not need them or even want them, then the question is just like, what is the sacrificial system for? Instead of taking away sins those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins. The sacrifices were a reminder of sin, a reminder of the effects of sin and the weight of sin, a reminder of the death that comes as a result of sin and our need to have our sins and guilt removed from us, our need and our hope for a Savior. In that respect, the law of Moses was never about what we needed to do to earn God's favor or to appease God. God didn't ever need animal sacrifices. The law was actually for us, for humanity, to become aware of our sin, to see and feel its correlation to death, and to recognize our need for salvation. So if the Hebrew sin was not removed through the animal sacrifices, were they just kind of up the river without a paddle? Were their sins just destined to always weigh upon them, never to be removed? Well, remember, the law is the shadow of the good things to come. So that leads me to my next point. And for us Christians, it's a really beautiful point, and that's Jesus' sacrifice. Starting in verse 8. First Christ said you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I've come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. "'Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand, and there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy.'" And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so, for he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. In verse 10, we see that the will of God was not for animal sacrifices to cover sin. God's will was always that the sacrifice of Jesus would make us holy. And Jesus came to accomplish that will all the way to the cross. It wasn't the death of an uncomprehending animal that could save us from our sins. It was the willful sacrifice of the one that accepted the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays, Thy will be done. Jesus is the better sacrifice because he is the willful sacrifice. And also, as our high priest, he offers himself once and for all as a sacrifice for the sins of all people for all time. That doesn't mean all time in just like a linear fashion, everyone after his death, but also for everyone that preceded him, that existed before Jesus. Not a single sacrifice from this point forward, but for all time. And this might blow your mind a little bit if you haven't thought about this before. Even as the Hebrews were offering sacrifices for their sins, offering animals up for their sins, up to 1,300 or some 1,400 years before Jesus ever went to the cross, Jesus' single sacrifice was still the means by which their sins were forgiven. Look, God is outside of time. His plans don't always flow in a linear way that we can only comprehend as humans. And there's a certain mystery to that as we live in regards to God's timing, but what we know is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection sits kind of at this center point of human history, redeeming all humans who came after. And also, all humans that came before. You could even think about it this way biblical prophecy and these shadows of the good things to come work backwards, meaning that the reason there are prophecies to begin with, pointing forward, is that the fulfillment already exists in the eyes of God. The fulfillment actually causes the prophecy to exist, not the prophecy kind of causing the fulfillment or leading to the fulfillment. The prophecy comes because the fulfillment has already happened. The reason the shadow of the law existed was because the work of Jesus was finished. We've been talking a lot about this at Crossview, that all things we read about in the Bible, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. So in regards to the sacrificial system, Jesus was always the great high priest, the ultimate high priest who entered heaven and intercedes for us on behalf of the Father. Because through the incarnation, he understands our weakness. We read about that in Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 7. And we see that here again in verse 12. Our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. So he is the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. You know, we talk about self-sacrifice. That's literally what's happening here. He is the high priest who sacrifices himself for our sins. Jesus also refers to his own body as the temple in the book of John. And we talked last week about how the temple was the space where the presence of God dwelled among his people. So the apostle John also writes in the beginning of his gospel that the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us in John 1.14. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. And he's even the temple himself. And this was the reality from the beginning of time, so the shadow of the sacrificial system outlined that reality. And to me, that's mind-blowing stuff. But let me focus in on Jesus as the high priest for a moment. Verse 11, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. So moving away from specifically the Day of Atonement to the regular daily sacrifices that took place in the temple, the priest stands and does his priestly duties day after day. And the author is being very intentional with the word stands. Uh, When you're standing, you're working, you're busy, you're doing stuff. And we're familiar with that idea in our culture. That's why in some jobs today, especially in the service industry, it's kind of frowned upon if you sit down because you don't look like you're working, you don't look busy. I personally think that's kind of whack, but whatever, it is what it is. So the priest stands continually working, administering these animal and grain offerings. But in verse 12, what did Jesus do after he offered himself as a sacrifice? He sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. We can read that verse and kind of focus on the glorification aspect of Jesus, like he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, this place of honor, and that's true. But the imagery here is also important that he sat down showing that the work is done. He's not working anymore. The work is finished. The problem of sin has been dealt with once for all time, so there's no need for continual sacrifices or continual work. There's no need for repetition because the work of Christ has secured our redemption forever. So Jesus cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect, not because the first covenant was bad or wrong, but because its work was finished, it was accomplished. Just as Jesus says as he hangs on the cross, it is finished. I've personally wrestled with the idea of the finished work of Jesus. Do you ever like look back to your adolescence and you cringe a little bit? Like you look at your eighth grade yearbook photo and you're just like, what's up with my hair? or like, what am I wearing? What am I doing? What was I thinking? I, I kind of went through something like that in my own spiritual adolescence, if you will, where in retrospect, it's a little embarrassing, but you know, it's all a part of the journey. We're all on a, on a journey here. Um, so between college semesters, when I was like 19 or 20, I was delving into the Old Testament law on my own and the sacrificial system, and I was just kind of interested in it from a theological perspective. And as I studied it I felt the need to just do something about it, to acknowledge the law of Moses in my own life in some way. Don't worry, I didn't sacrifice animals. That's not where this is going. Uh, but kind of as a symbolic gesture of those sacrifices, I would write down my sins on a little sheet of paper, and I would actually go to the commuter parking lot behind the NIU engineering building, and in, like, in the middle of the night, I would go and like burn these sheets of paper. It probably looked really suspicious. I probably looked like an arson. Uh, an arsonist, uh, but that was my way of just trying to feel like my sins were being removed. That was kind of the symbolic gesture that I felt like I needed to do. And while it was questionable, certainly, there's nothing wrong with the practice that helped me kind of work through my confession of sin. But my heart behind it was that I personally needed to do something repeatedly to deal with my own sin, to deal with my guilt, And I don't think I fully understood the finished work of Jesus on the cross that removes my sin. And looking back, it's embarrassing and it's awkward, but it's also just really sad. It's foolish to continually repeat sacrifices for sin, even for the remembrance of guilt, because Jesus has redeemed us from sin and replaced our shame with his righteousness and his glory. And it's equally foolish to idolize the law of Moses because Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit who puts God's laws in our hearts and writes them on our minds. In our human need and desire for systems and structures, God ultimately just wants us to know him, to accept what he's done for us, to receive him, and to receive his very presence. Not to offer the works of our own sacrifices or even our religious devotion, but he wants our very selves, that his true law would dwell in us because his very presence dwells in us. One Bible commentator I read said it this way, the process of salvation takes people who are far from perfect and makes them fit to be in God's presence forever. Or as Pastor Jeff said last week, where the priests of this world were creating separation between things, Jesus is bringing all things together, united in him. But I think it's really easy to get stuck in systems and structures. It's easy to get stuck in a cycle of shame and guilt. So in light of Jesus' sacrifice, I want us to examine our guilt and our shame as our last point here. This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then in verse 17, then he says, I will, remember, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there's no need to offer any more sacrifices. Here the author is quoting the prophet Jeremiah, who he quotes many times throughout the book, recalling the promise that God will never again remember our sins. And I want to contrast that with verse 3 that we looked at earlier, that the sacrifices actually reminded the Hebrews of their sins year after year. The sacrificial system didn't actually remove sin. Jesus was the one doing that all along. And it was meant to awaken us to the knowledge of sin and the hope of the one who can save us from it to create a longing as we see the shadow of Jesus coming into the room. And in that, it dealt with their guilt. It was a way by which they could express their guilt and shame, although their guilt and shame continued to linger, which is why the repetition of the sacrifices continued, kind of putting things together here. So it was a reminder and a catalyst for dealing with their shame But I I want us to be okay with acknowledging that the sacrificial system was a very hard reminder. Maybe some of us kind of wrestle with that when we read about the sacrificial system. And it's okay to struggle with the brutality and almost the barbaric nature of the sacrificial system. It is gruesome. It is bloody. It's messy. It reeks of death. But once again, it's a shadow of the fulfillment that we see in Jesus, who died a death for our sins that was brutal that was barbaric, gruesome, bloody, and messy because that was the cost for our sin. So as the new covenant of Jesus cancels the first covenant, we no longer remember our guilt, we remember Jesus. The Hebrews were reminded of their sins, but God promises he will never again remember our sins or lawless deeds. For those that trust in Jesus, he will never again remember our sins. This language is used throughout Scripture. Usually when the Bible says that God remembers sin, it means that he's going to punish sin. But when it says that God doesn't remember sins, it means he pardons it, he forgives it. And that's the heart of God. That's what all of Scripture points to. That is the desire of God for all of us. And once again, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Back in verse 3, the Greek word here for reminded is anamnesis which can also translate as remembrance. So the King James Bible actually translates the verse a little differently. And I think I have those up on the screen. So you can see the NLT and the KJV. So in the KJV, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And what's super cool about this word for remembrance is that it's used in only one other situation in the New Testament. If we were in youth group right now, I'd be like, does anyone know? But I'm preaching, so I'm just going to tell you. That's in the accounts of the Lord's supper. So, looking at Luke 22:19, he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it, then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, "This is my body which is given for you; do this in remembrance of me." We are no longer called to remember our sins because God remembers them no more. We're called to remember Jesus because he didn't say, "Do this in remembrance of your sins." He said, do this in remembrance of me. And that's an important distinction. Often in churches, communion or the Lord's Supper is used as a time to reflect on your sins and to confess your sins, and that is totally right and good. But we don't stay there. We don't just live in shame and guilt, repeating our own personal sacrifices in hopes to be acceptable before God. No, we remember Jesus, who finished the work who has redeemed us from the power of sin and given us new life. So we cast our sins on him and continue in the love and the joy and the unity that he's called us to, seeing how he holds all things together by his blood. So recently here at Crossview, we've been doing communion every week. And we do that because Jesus told his followers to do it as an act of remembrance. So we do this act of remembrance week after week after week. And there are many titles I had floating around in my head for this sermon, but I settled on From Repetition to Redemption. I was reflecting on how priests, they made their sacrifices year after year and day after day, and looking at the whole Old Testament narrative, Israel found itself in this habitual cycle of of sin and rebellion against God, and then followed by their guilt, and then followed by sacrifices of their sin and guilt and repentance. But then that cycle just restarts again and again and again. Sin, guilt, sacrifices. Sin, guilt, sacrifices. And while we don't live under a sacrificial system, we don't live under the old covenant, I think we can find ourselves sometimes in a similar cycle. So whether you follow Jesus or whether you don't, some of us have patterns of sin in our lives and sometimes we'll awaken to our need to deal with it whether through personal conviction or through the words of others or just finding ourselves in really terrible, desperate situations under the shadow of spiritual death. So we carry guilt and shame. And we try to do what we can to escape it. We try to get out of that shadow lingering over our lives. So we make offerings of our own to make things right. We try to restructure our lives. We make promises before God or before others to stop the sins that we were doing. Or we make promises maybe to do something that we should have been doing all along. And we try to make amends with certain people affected by our sin. Or we try to distance ourselves from those affected. We sometimes try to hide. We try to cover our tracks to avoid the shame and guilt that we feel. Just to be comfortable with our very selves. To be comfortable in our own skin. And we stand at the altar of our own shame, continually working to offer those sacrifices over and over again that actually don't have the power to change us, to change our hearts. They never have the power to actually free us and redeem us from sin. So we find ourselves in a cycle of sin, a similar cycle of guilt, and a cycle of personal sacrifice and offering. And we do this again and again, year after year, and that becomes our life. And we find ourselves maybe old, maybe tired, and we ask ourselves, is this it? Is this life? So if you find yourself in that type of situation, the good news for you this morning is the good news that God has been proclaiming since the beginning of time, that God is not interested in you living a life of repetition in your shame. Rather, his desire for you is to live a life of his redemption, free from your sin and united with the one who created you and loves you and all you need to do is confess that Jesus is lord that he's the high priest that sacrificed himself for you on the cross and raised as the, from the dead as a promise that you would be free from sin and you would also be alive in him and experience that new life so we acknowledge our sin we mourn its effects but we don't stay in the cycle of guilt and shame because in Christ God remembers our sins no more instead We remember the sacrifice of Jesus who died as the sacrificial lamb once and for all time that we may truly live and be united with him. Amen.